This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, welcome to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shawley, bringing you the best of my Times radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, last episode of the week uh, for this week, but if you've been enjoying the podcast, and frankly, why wouldn't you be, um, why not post a review on iTunes? Say something nice, and that will help us in the mumbo-jumbo charts uh, that they have on iTunes. Anyway, uh, coming up, we uh, I've been talking to Michael Crick about 40 years of chasing politicians down the street. Really, really uh, fascinating chat with him, including um, had he ever regretted uh, his confrontation of, uh, of any politicians uh, and also his views on uh, has Channel 4 News become all a bit too lefty and should Kay Burley stay on Sky News so all that coming up uh, in my chat with Michael Crick but first it's our columnist panel it's Thursday so it must be Web Cram as literally nobody's calling them it's Esther Weber and Robert Crampton Regrettably I'm sorry to inform you that we're going to have to start by talking about Brexit Oh no! Uh, <laughs> I, just got, I just got my Christmas minister lined up. Okay, well, save that, save that. That's good. That's good. I think that's what they call in the trade teasing ahead, so people will stay for uh, during the dull chat about Brexit because you've got it's a good, good, you've got a pun uh, to to share with us later. I mean, in a way, I feel like we're duty bound to talk about Brexit, but then nothing's happened. It's all been kicked to um, uh, to Sunday instead, Esther. But the the prospect of um, MPs sitting on Christmas Day does that excite you? Uh, <laughs> uh, not, not wildly, I have to say. I've um, <laughs> I've been speaking to a few people in Parliament who are working on Brexit in different capacities, and they're just saying to me, "Please, please, please." Let us have a few days off. Um, I suspect they will, and but I think what's probably more likely is that there could be some situation where MPs come back between Christmas and New Year. Um, although who knows if we're even going to get a deal uh, at this rate. Um. Robert, what do you make of it, having sort of viewed it, you the luxury of not viewing all this from being in Westminster? Um, it just feels like uh, we've been around this performance several times before. Yeah, we've had it a lot before. It's, it's quite uh, dramatic. Uh, well, it's interesting that uh, when Barnier isn't there, things seem to move a little bit. I mean, I know they haven't moved very much, but uh, I think I got a bit of a scoop on this through Arsene Wenger, of all people, who I interviewed in September. And he's friends with Barnier. And he said, and I wrote this in the interview, that Barnier told him way, way back 
that he was going to have to be really hard on the Brits uh, in any negotiations because they had to pour en- encourage les autres. You know, they couldn't have the Brits leaving on a good footing because then everybody might want to. Uh, and I thought that might have been picked up at the time, but it wasn't. Anyway, I think that his absence is, is, is a positive thing. And uh, Ursula seems to be uh, at least willing to have, you know, be vaguely positive. It does seem, Esther, there was that sort of hint of uh, progress being made while Barnier was self-isolating, and then he came out of his self-isolating, and it all got quite um, uh, tough again. Yes, uh, that that does seem to have been a pattern that um, we we were told that things were moving along a bit more when he was self-isolating, and um, another official, Stephanie Rito, had been involved, and she actually kind of impressed the British side quite a lot. And um, but I, I feel a bit in this whole thing like um, I don't know we're sort of we're a bit like someone who has been told so many times this is the week things are <laughs> going to change and it's really going to be different last, this time. It's almost like a sort of a boyfriend promising to change mm. their behaviour. So it's like, yes, it's definitely going to be di- different this time. This week something positive will happen. Um, and yet again, mm. we've been told it's not going to be until Sunday and possibly not until the end of the year. Yeah. And, then, and then people always split up at Christmas, don't they? So... <laughs> yeah, to try and save, yeah. Money on, uh, save money on presents. Um, uh, yeah, I was sort of slightly struck as well. That there is this sort of, you know, and it is a, it's a cliche, but there's a reason why it's a cliche, but journalists do need a deadline. I know... You know, I'm more than happy to knuckle down and to do something. But if it, you know, if it needs doing tomorrow, I'll do it today. I'm not, if it doesn't need doing until next week, I'm probably not going to do it today. And I think having a, a prime minister who is a journalist yeah. uh, at heart, he probably thinks, well, yeah, just give me a deadline and then I'll do it. But I'm not going to think about it until the day before. Um, uh, and this sort of floating deadline thing uh, probably doesn't happen. How, how are you at, um, writing your column, Robert? Yeah, I'm pretty much like that. I can say that's a good point you make there. I think. Uh... I think, yeah, journalists are not people who should be running the country, really, because, yeah, we do everything last minute. It's in the nature of newspapers. Uh, I write it when I have to. And if for some reason somebody says you've got an extra uh, half a day or even an extra 15 minutes, then I would sit and twiddle my thumbs until until the uh, that time has elapsed and then I start again. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad it's not just me. I'm glad it's not, not just me. Um, let's talk. Let's let's move away from Brexit now. Uh, let's talk about some of this interesting story uh, in the papers today. Cambridge University has been forced to drop rules requiring students, lecturers, and visitors to respect opposing views after mm. overwhelming opposition from academics. There was, there was a, a vote at the university uh, overnight um, on this free speech issue. Uh, with Don successfully challenging this, what they called a vague and authoritarian policy they feared would stifle debate and threaten staff with disciplinary action or, or sacking for being disrespe- disrespectful. What, what do you make of this? Because on the one hand, you don't want people to feel upset about things, which is obviously what they're trying to uh, do. But you can't sort of essentially legislate within university rules that, that you've got to be nice to everyone, regardless of, of what you know what they think about things. No, I mean some people. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a. I think it's a red herring. This that you've got to be respectful of all of people's views. I mean, within reason, yeah. But there's lots of views that I don't respect. I don't respect a lot of attitudes in the Middle East, for instance, towards gays and women. 
Uh, I don't respect those views at all. I don't really respect the people who hold them, and I don't actually respect their right to hold them either. So uh, the idea that everyone at any cost has to have their views respected, whether they're however loathsome they are, is is nonsense and oppressive, and they were right to chuck this out. Esther, it's it's one of those things which starts off with the best of intentions, doesn't it? And then it yeah. it, it, it sort of descends into into you know madness. Yeah, and um, I have to say that um, I find it hard to get het up about this kind of thing. I know <laughs> a lot of people feel very strongly about it, but I don't think this is the kind of number one issue facing universities. It always seems to be sort of driven by the Oxbridge kind of debating society and what they're going and who they're going to invite and in this year which has been so difficult for students I, <laughs> I don't really think that's kind of the number one issue facing the higher education sector even if it does seem like the system probably worked correctly and they they found the right outcome for the rules in the end I was sort of trying to wonder: is it is it whether all like the internet's to blame for this or something? Because this is the sort of thing that probably wouldn't normally have troubled the pages of national newspapers. I do, actually, I disagree with you, Matt. I think the media has got it's uh, to picking up what Esther said. I think the media has got an unhealthy obsession with Oxford and Cambridge, rather as it has yeah. with Eton College, uh, as we saw. You know, you, and nobody who went to Eton uh, can be described without saying "old Etonian" in the first line, and often you get. I don't know if somebody goes disappears in the in the in the Australian outback. They will always say blah 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 Oxford graduate. Yeah, uh, it's it's very strange. So I think this probably would have been a story a pre-internet. Uh, but as Esther says, uh, if it had been at any other university, just as if the Eton row had been at any other school, then no, it probably wouldn't have been. So I think that's what's going on. Yeah, but having not been to university at all, I don't know how I would be described if I got went missing in the outback. Um, <laughs> Matt Shawley, non-graduate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Massive thicko. <laughs> it's no wonder he got lost in the outback, the bloody idiot. Um... <laughs> oh, dear. Um, uh, uh, but the good news is... So- let's move on from that, then. If we're, gonna, if we're saying that this is an unhealthy obsession with Oxford and Cambridge, we should probably stop talking about it. Uh, let's talk about sausages instead. Are you relieved that, yeah. that sausages are safe, Esther? <laughs> yes, definitely. I mean, it would be terrible news for future pigs in blankets wouldn't it? If, <laughs> if we couldn't guarantee that they were going to be able to travel around Ireland and to the UK. Um, but yeah, it it does. It, even though maybe this just feels like one small element of all the different things to be sorted out. There is something symbolic about these agreements being reached uh, this week on the Northern Irish border because it does sort of show, show that it is possible yeah. and people can get together and talk as Michael Gave has done with the Vice President of the European Commission, whose surname I'm not going to attempt to Sef- pronounce right now. I think Mal- yes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it shows that it is possible on occasion, and um, and let's have some more of it, please. Yeah, um, Michael Gove described him yesterday as the sausage king. Yeah. Uh, 
There which... are just some words, aren't there? Not sure about that. No, I, 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 I made sure to, to, to clarify that, that he, he wasn't involved in that sex party in Brussels. That was an entirely different um, <laughs> collection of it's, it's EU always, officials. It's, it's always sausages or bananas, isn't it? It's always something phallic. Yeah. <laughs> Weird, weird stuff. You can do I some sort of deep dive on that. Yeah, there's definitely there there's definitely a, a sort of an Atlantic long read on uh, Britain's obsession with phallic foods. There's uh, something yeah. uh, there's just something funny about the word sausage. Also, nothing. Not, I mean, everything comes around. Do you remember Jim Hacker when he's when he's yes. uh, yeah. lobbying to become prime minister, and he makes this ridiculously xenophobic speech about how Brussels is trying to rename the British sausage the emulsified fat tube or something. Yeah, the emulsified, uh, yeah, high fat, awful yeah, tube. Yes, and that's what and that's what pushes it that's what kind of pushes him over the edge and gets him gets him into number ten. So yeah. It's just been, it's, that was this was it's all predicted, isn't it? Well, on the subject of TV shows, you see, it flows perfectly this if we really think about it. Um you've written your column about the undoing, Robert. Now I yeah. I've watched it, and I'm 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 slightly. I don't want to do spoilers because if people might be listening um, who haven't got to the end yet, I thought it was absolutely yeah. brilliant until the ending. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to do. I'm not sure I can talk about what I wrote without doing the spoiler. It, uh, okay, fine. Know, if people, you're people if, are still people are still probably catching up, aren't they, on uh, on box sets and stuff? So anyway, we can well, we can part uh, anyway, that and just wife, talk about the fact that your wife thinks you're a narcissist. She accused me of what? She accused me of what? Uh, Nicole Kidman accused Hugh Grant of having in the in the undoing, which is narcissistic personality disorder. And I made the mistake of going to the loo. And while I was in the loo, she looked up all the symptoms, which is uh, one of the curses curses of the internet. And yeah, I did have a fair few. <laughs> Go on then. What are your what are your um, which ones have you ticked off? Oh, uh, uh, appearing overconfident, but but actually lacking self esteem. Uh, what else was there? Uh, I don't know. I've done, I'm sorry. I'm struggling to think now. But an awful lot of them, <laughs> apart from not, I didn't do anything as as uh, uh, outrageous as uh, Hugh Grant may or may not have done in The Undoing. <laughs> Esther, have you been watching it? Um, I feel like that's a better question than Do you think Robert's a narcissist? <laughs> <laughs> all a bit narcissist. Definitely, oh, definitely safer. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's sort of um, it's slightly the nature of writing a column. Um, uh, you know, convincing yourself that everybody's you know gripped by your every thought. No, my my problem is that I'm a big fan of Gogglebox, and um, they've been watching The Undoing on Gogglebox, and now I've sort of seen so much of it, sort of by accident, that there's literally no point in me watching it. So um, I mean, it's sort of like, yeah. it, it is brilliant and glossy and gripping, and it's got Nicole Kidman playing Nicole Kidman in it, and it's got Hugh Grant playing Hugh Grant, and all of that is is. Sort of, and Don, Great. And Donald what Sullivan. more could you want? Uh, and yeah. yeah, and Donald Sullivan playing Donald Sullivan brilliantly. Um, and there's lots of twists and turns along the way up until the very end, and then you just think, oh, what was the point of that? Yeah, <laughs> endings a are bit hard. like a bit like Brexit. <laughs> exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's what I was setting up. Oh, there we are. You see, it all comes together. We couldn't have scripted it. We couldn't have scripted it. Um, uh, Go on then, Johnny, before I let you go, Christmas. let's have your... Who's your minister for Christmas, Robert? Well, I haven't got a Christmas minister, but I've got somebody who could play Santa... I think they could all play Santa Claus, because they should all get the sack. Ah, very oh. good. That's good. That's good. We'll have that. Esther, have you got one? Uh, I'm afraid mine's not as good as that, but I was thinking there has to be a role for Holly Lynch. Perfect. Somewhere. We'll take that, Holly Lynch. I like that, because that is brilliantly niche. Um, I mean, you know, she's not the most well-known of MP, so thank you very much for that, Esther. 
That was Robert Crampton and Esther Webber Webcram, as uh, they're known. And you can obviously read them both in The Times. Esther does The Times Red Box email now, and Robert's in the paper. He writes for Times 2 and for the Saturday magazine, The Times. Uh, you can subscribe to The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's my chat with Michael. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Well, quick. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shawley, and now we're going to talk to this man. You came third in a two-horse race. What went wrong? Why are you avoiding questions on this? You have not done a, you have not done a television interview. Why are you running away from the questions? What are you doing in London rather than Gaza, Mr. Lambert? You've done anything right since you took over, Mr. Lambert? When are you going to resign, Mr. Lambert? <laughs> and there are whole uh, montages on the internet of uh, of Michael Crick chasing uh, politicians down the road, and I'm delighted that Michael Crick joins me now. Morning, Michael. Good morning. Um, <laughs> Uh, we will come to your habit of chasing people. I'm, I, I, it occurred to me this morning that we should be doing this interview with me chasing you down the road. That would be a much more... <laughs> yes. Um, uh, although we'd have to have a very a very long microphone because we'd also have to be two metres apart know, at all it's, it, Doorstepping people, it's, uh, you can't do it at the moment very easily. You need a, 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 a carrying a two-metre microphone. It doesn't have uh, the same thing. It just doesn't work. And, and also, it's much harder to find out where people are because... A lot of the time, they're not actually in their offices. They're having meetings by Zoom from home or wherever. Um, so uh, I'm afraid I've had to give it up for a few months. So let's... Um, I noticed when we uh, having you on, is it 40 years this year that you first joined ITN as a reporter. Yeah. Um, well, as, as a trainee. As a trainee. trainee. Was, as out a tra- of university, yeah. yeah. And then not long after that, you, uh, you joined Channel 4 News when it, was, um, when it was set up. What was that like? I mean, having been through... Uh, setting up a radio station in a pandemic. Um, it's, it's exciting to be part of something new, but also sort of slightly trepidatious. How, how was it um, being part of Channel 4 News? Well, it, it, it was chaotic. I mean, I, we, just, we had 28 staff, I remember, when we started. And um, the, uh, I mean, that was just nothing like enough. And we, it was just absolutely exhausting. Uh, and nobody watched it. Uh, I remember Peter <laughs> Sissons, the presenter of Channel 4 News, the first one, said, you know, it would be simpler just to ring the viewers up and tell them what the news was <laughs> uh, rather than produce this broadcast every night. But gradually the programme got turned round um, after a year or two, um, largely by uh, Stuart Purvis, the then, the, who took over as editor in uh, 84, I think. And the modern Channel 4 News is really his model. And it was new. It was a, it was a news analysis programme. 
that wanted to say more than just what's happened, but explain why it had happened. And I was young and keen and enthusiastic and got stuck into the miners' strike uh, of 84 to 85, and everything sort of flowed from there. And, and there were some people, you know, it's, it's a bit Marmite-ish, Channel 4 News, um, these days. You accuse it of being, you know, a bit lefty and that sort of is that is that a reasonable criticism of Channel 4 News? Well, I, I think at times it has become a bit of a political crusade. Um, and uh, the uh, I, I wasn't happy about that uh, towards the end. And I think there is a problem, not just at Channel 4 News, but uh, of, of television journalism in general, is that I think the standards of impartiality, which I always grew up with, have dropped at times. And too often you watch a television presenter and you say, well, I know, I can tell what your political views are. And, you know, I was always taught. In fact, I remember very early on in ITN uh, expressing some strong political views because I had strong political views in those days. And my editor said, you can't say that. You've got to remember, Michael, that when you join, when you come to ITN, when you go into broadcasting, You've got to have an opinionectomy. And I went away and had an opinionectomy. And it was very painful. But, I, you know, I learned the lesson that you've got to you've got to be really careful. And if you're not careful, then you alienate what alienate one group of people, one side of the political spectrum. And it's very, very difficult to do the job. I mean, I think the other problem that broadcasters have had increasingly is that because we all come from the same kind of background and I'm the same. I'm middle class. I went to Oxford. I went to a private school. But we lose touch with um, uh, half the country. And that's why we got Brexit wrong and why we got Boris Johnson's election wrong. Some at least didn't, we didn't expect him to win so well. And why we got Trump wrong. And uh, we don't recruit enough people who didn't go to university. People who come from Barrow or Middlesbrough or, or, or even Scotland. And we, we, we're all metropolitan, university educated and certain views are not held in newsrooms. I mean, I, I remember when I was at Channel 4 News at the end, I think I could only identify two people amongst the journalists there who voted for Brexit, which is very unhealthy. And it's a very bad way of understanding what's going on. And, and, and we're, we're always hot on diversity in, you know, in Channel 4 and ITN and the BBC. Uh, but we don't think of diversity in terms of people's backgrounds. And we should do. We should we should really put extra effort in to get people from genuine working class background, people who didn't go to university. When, when I joined ITN, half the journalists there hadn't gone to university. Now, I think it's, it's probably a tiny percent who hadn't gone to, hadn't gone to university. And uh, so you get a certain mindset and it means that you, you fail to spot what's going on. And also there's a, there's a basic failure to go out and explore, which has always been part of my uh, my work as well I, you know you're so much better going out on the road and talking to people rather than sitting in office and playing around on the internet and making phone calls <laughs> i tell you i mean i i would i would point out i didn't go to university and i i, ah, I, well, I good i but i know how few of us there are in in and around particularly the national media that you do sort of still slightly get a pat on the head uh from uh uh other people you know how many how many does um, uh, you know, you've got all the way to the Times as if, you know, I'm not a brain surgeon. I'm only writing nonsense in the paper. Um, uh, so at what point then when you were at Channel 4 News, did you start chasing people down the streets, the thing you're probably best known for doing? I don't know, really. I mean, it, it was, I, I suppose it was my first stint. I mean, all, all television reporters do a bit of it. And um, I just sort of developed it over time. I remember one account working on Panorama once, and I had a, a, a report, a, a producer there called Daniel Britton-Catlin, 
and it wasn't uh, it wasn't it wasn't a doorstep i remember doing box pops and he said to me your box pops are pathetic let me get let me do let me show you and he took my microphone it was quite humiliating really took my microphone and went down the street and did a whole lot better series of box pops and i thought actually you, you've really got to develop a new style and so i did over the years and i mean doorsteps are quite complicated actually it looks simple but First of all, you've got to work out where they're going to be and when. And sometimes you've got to, I mean, if you're really looking for a big one and on an investigation, you've got to turn, turn up several times very early in the morning um, without making, you know, without making it obvious you, you're the, uh, you're, that you're there. You've got to think what the question is. What, the, what is the question? Or indeed, what are the words that are going to, going to get them to talk? Um, or is it that you're not really expecting them to say anything? You just want to make a point. You just want a bit of drama, a bit of a bit of um, a video. And then the other thing you mustn't do is get distracted, because if you're on a doorstep with a whole load of other people, you know, old mates from the BBC or whatever, it's very easy to get nattering away to them about who's up and who's down <laughs> and who's having an affair and who's about to get the sack. And suddenly the person walks out. And you've forgotten what question you were going to ask, and you, you just messed the doorstep up totally. So it does require supreme constant, supreme concentration. And when you're doing it, you're right because I suppose there's different sort of questions you could ask. There is a genuine question of uh, why did you do this, or have you got anything to say to the people affected by your decision? And sometimes you're just shouting, "Are you going to resign?" Yeah, I mean, it, it, not really <laughs> in the hope. I don't recall an occasion of somebody saying. Now you mention it, yes, I am. <laughs> uh, <laughs> quite often a bit of humour. It depends on who the person is, but quite often, if you ask a humorous question, it can't resist, you know. And, so, and there are some politicians who feel, you know, it's, um, it's, un, it's unmanly, uh, old-fashioned phrase, it's unmanly not to answer the question, you know. Um, so that it, 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 you've got to think it through and, and catch their eye if you can. And also, timing. You've got to get your question in loudly a split second before all the others who are standing around you <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, 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 whom you've been having a nice conversation with about what's going on at work uh, you've got to get in there t- and and you've got to get near enough for them to hear it so i mean quite often it fails but um there is uh there there, there is certainly there is an art to it i mean there are tricks as well that um i probably would i better not give away because um <laughs> it, it won't do me uh any good but uh it is like, I always think it's a bit like, you know, it's like hunting, it's like fishing. Uh, and I always think journalism, you know, the, the, the investigative journalism is a bit like espionage, but with none of the danger, but all the fun. And <laughs> I've, I've certainly had a lot of fun over the years and, and intend to carry on, carry on having fun. Um, although the... I'm not on, on mainstream uh, television anymore. I'm, uh, I work for Mail Plus and do a, a film for them uh, every week. Yeah, has there been a shift over that time in the way that politicians approach it? Did, was there a time when they sort of felt annoying though you might be? They felt obliged to sort of slightly engage. And nowadays, it feels like nowadays the ability of a politician to walk down a street pretending that someone isn't shouting questions at them by the side, you know, they just, you know, they just think they don't need to talk to, to journalists to engage in that sort of way. Is that, has that changed? I mean, I was looking no, back through quite, some of your greatest there are, hits. And... There are probably more politicians now who don't engage and are told not to. Uh, and often it looks bad when they don't really, make, you know, especially if you're, you're asking simple questions. Um, but I mean, the, the whole attitude between the relationship between politicians and the media is radically different from 40 years ago. 40 years ago, we were incredibly deferential. You know, we'd never stand in Downing Street and shout out, well, apart from really big occasions, um, and, you know, or go round to people's 
uh, houses uh, early in the morning as, as regularly uh, as we do these days. There was doorstepping, but it was a lot rarer. And it was a lot, the polit- and the political journalists were much more dependent on their relationships with the politicians. And therefore they didn't want to offend them by asking cheeky questions. So often they would get somebody else, some uh, more junior member of the staff to go out and ask the cheeky questions. And indeed there is still uh, an element of that. And I think it's very much to the credit of say Laura Koonsberg, that she not only has that great relationship with all the leading figures, but she's also willing to go into Downing Street <laughs> and ask the cheeky questions, which might um, might annoy the very people that she then needs to ring up and get the information from. Do you think you're saying that there's a lot more of the um, uh, doorstepping that sort? Of, do you think it's got yeah. out of hand that the um, you know the Dominic Cummings question? There was a big you know there's a big debate about Dominic Cummings was clearly in the news, but did that require or necessitate dozens of journalists on his doorstep you know upsetting the neighbors you know trying to get his kids to school and all that sort of thing i mean he there's a there was a yeah, line yeah, isn't it does are, that cross there, the line there are, there are times when it's when it's over the top um i mean you could argue should you be even uh doorstepping coming because he's after all an advisor not an elected politician but i'd say look he you know he's one of the most powerful people in the land and he is fair game but there are times when perhaps you do go too often or you intrude on on privacy, and I've probably been uh, guilty of that myself. And you've got to remember, one of the reasons why we do these doorsteps is because we are, it, because it is television. We need pictures. And when I started in television 40 years ago, political coverage just in, just consisted of uh, boring grey grey men <laughs> addressing the camera and talking about the debate was going, which was going on in Parliament. And of course, there were no pictures of the debate. And they they very rarely went out and did anything uh, with a camera and made a film. Uh, and they very rarely went out and, and, and doorstepped anybody. So it was television coverage was of politics was incredibly non-visual and, ca- and ca- terribly boring. And it basically got developed and produced and jazzed up a lot. A lot of this came from America um, and, and to, into the kind of television coverage there is today. I mean, one of the great Americans that always inspired me was a man called Sam Donaldson, who um, was always doorstepping Reagan or at least shouting questions <laughs> at, at Ronald Reagan. Uh, in the 1980s. And the White House used to counter this by um, uh, running the helicopters uh, really loud uh, when Reagan (laughs) was going in and out of a helicopter. Um, And so then Sam Donaldson got himself a loud hailer so that he could (laughs) ask the question or be heard to ask the question over the sound of the helicopter uh, noise. I mean, there, there is, I have to say, there is an element of sport about all of this. But also, you are essentially asking... Um, important questions you don't you know a lot of the time you don't expect them to answer it but you do you, what you are doing is trying to show the what trying to sum up what that important question is that day and the fact that it is an embarrassing question for the uh the the, the individual concern and i suppose quite often it's someone who isn't giving interviews or are answering the question you know they find themselves in a news story or some you know some sort of controversy and they're not doing uh, interviews to explain themselves so you it, the act of it, them not answering your questions sort does add to um people's understanding of what's going on indeed and we are in an era now where lots of ministers and lots of shadow ministers it has to be said uh very rarely give interviews at all uh, they go month after month after month without doing any broadcast interviews and of course we very rarely, I mean, up until the time of COVID anyway, we very rarely had uh, prime ministerial press conferences anymore or leader of the opposition press conferences. Well, you'll remember 10, 15 years ago, there'd be uh, 
Brown and Cameron and Clegg and uh, and Miliband and so would be holding press conferences all the time. So um, we have been rather starved of interaction uh, between the politicians and the uh, and, and television journalists. And and indeed, uh, the the government, this government and the previous government, have, for, for periods, have been boycotting certain uh, television programs. Which uh, so that makes it even more uh, necessary that you should go out and try and find them. I mean, the best place to do it really is the party conference because everybody's there. They're all milling round, um, and it's difficult for them to get away from you because <laughs> you know that there's yeah, you know there's a perimeter. <laughs> it's like going hunt, you know, it's like going hunting in a in a safari yeah, park. Yeah. And of course, the other the other good time is elections. Um, and uh, but what, one of the problems is that you find in the modern uh, media world is that because there are so many media outlets compared with the old days, uh, it gives. Um, television, uh, uh, government press officers or party press officers, the excuse to say, right, we're only going to allow one camera into the um, this factory with the prime minister and the and the local candidate, uh, and it'll be what's known as a pool arrangement, whereby the one camera then has to share all the material uh, with all the other um, channels, uh, which means there's there's a, a great lack lack of variety in the coverage, and it means that there there are no doorsteps really because the the reporter going round with the one camera uh, is not going to be doing doorsteps on but on behalf of everybody. So it makes the the coverage so much more bland, and um, so it means we just got to try harder and think of other ways <laughs> of uh, of getting to them. Uh, you can in the end if you put the effort in. I remember one doorstep when we when we uh, when we were. Um, Doorstepping. Uh, well, I wanted to ask Nick Timothy, Theresa May's advisor, about uh, his involvement in um, the expenses, the, uh, the the election expenses affair. And I remember for several days we worked out what, what routes he took to work to Downing Street from his flat, um, and, uh, and I noticed that on different days he took different routes. Um, and eventually we then, uh, uh, you know, they, they brought me in and uh, we got him and, and, and actually it was a doorstep that took place as we were crossing uh, Whitehall, uh, which was potentially very dangerous. But, uh, <laughs> that required, I mean, it, you know, I was sort of half the time looking around for traffic. Fortunately, there wasn't much. Um, and uh, there he was trying to playing with his Aston Villa scarf, a lovely, chunky Aston Villa scarf, which had clearly been knitted by some loving relation. And he was he was sort of playing with it, and you could tell that he really wanted to wrap it round my neck and throttle me. <laughs> uh, but he didn't. <laughs> the worst thing, the wor- the wor- I will give a tip to the politicians. The worst thing you can possibly do is put your hand over the camera. You might as well just write the word guilty on the back of your hand. Because it just looks dreadful. It does make you look like you're sort of, you know, you're on Watchdog or something and you've been selling yeah. dodgy double glazing or, or whatever. Well, um, uh, Roger's been in touch saying, uh, can I just say that Michael would often ask the questions which the public, general public are dying to ask themselves. Uh, politicians are accountable. But then uh, Pete is texted in saying, have you ever been chased down the street by a politician? Have they ever tried to turn the, turn the tables? No, uh, but there was an occasion when I was chased down. I was chased by uh, my colleagues because at one point, um, and really I shouldn't have done this, but I did. Uh, I put in. Um, I was doing a story about Ian Duncan Smith and and whether his wife Betsy was on the uh, being doing any work. She was on the, his payroll at, at Westminster, but was she doing any work for the uh, for that? And I put in a complaint to the Parliamentary Standards uh, Commissioner. And because um, I thought she wasn't, although there was sub- his inquiry subsequently found that she was doing work. But when I put that complaint in, I was chased down the street by my 
by by Nick Robinson and other colleagues from uh, the <laughs> Westminster Press Corps, which was uh, you know quite amusing. <laughs> and, um, uh, but I, I can't I can't even remember if I, I'm sure I must have answered some questions. You, <laughs> I hope you didn't put your hand over the camera. That would be no, uh, definitely. Not. No, no, be... The other thing, the other thing that you sometimes get. I mean, I remember Charlie Whelan, who was. Uh, one of uh, Gordon Brown's uh, Rottweilers, he he actually pulled the wire out of our camera on one occasion. Wow! And every time I meet him, he proudly <laughs> proudly <laughs> tells me about it again. Um, fortunately, but there aren't wires anymore between cameras and sound recordings, uh, so that's all right. And have you ever felt so- sympathy for anyone, or felt that you've gone too far, or is it all just part of the game? Yes. Um, I, I, one of the things that haunts me to this day is I was in a by-election in um, Eastleigh, in, not the recent one, but way back in 1994. And there was a young man called Keith House who was, the, um, who was, who was re- reckoned the favourite to become the Lib Dem candidate. He was only 24, I think, and he was the leader of the local council. And I said to him, I rang him up, said, would you do us an interview? You're, I hear you're going to get selected. And he said, yeah, sure. I was rather surprised, actually, that he agreed. Anyway, we did the interview. And I said, uh, so, Mr House, um, are you, um, you keep, the Liberal Democrats keep winning these by-elections, but it never actually seems to make any difference to politics in general. So what, you know, what, what, what difference does it make? And for nine seconds, he said nothing. I mean, nine seconds, it seemed like nine years. And then he came up with his answer. And um, we had a big debate about whether to, to run that. And I felt, um, the thing was, I had stuff that was on Labour and the Conservatives, which was a bit embarrassing to them. And so, so for sort of balance, I wanted to use this clip of Keith House. Um, and we ran it and they cho- decided not to choose him as the candidate. And um, uh, I felt really guilty um, that, you know, that we'd done huge damage to his career by running that. And uh, he's never stood for Parliament since, although he's been running Eastleigh Council now for about the last 25 years. Um, and so, you, you know, you, you do you do think about that. It has to be said that a very senior Liberal Democrat actually then wrote to me and said, I hear you've been worrying about whether you should have used that bit of Keith House. Well, as far as I'm concerned, yes, you should have done. So maybe they didn't want him to be the candidate anyway. <laughs> you, <laughs> but, you just served up the you know, excuse. There are, there are occasions like that. You do worry. You do worry. And um, and you... Uh, and you've got to remember, you know, these, these politicians are human beings as well. And they haven't just got the problems of being ministers and being MPs. They'll, they've no doubt got problems at home and difficult teenage sons and daughters. And, you know, maybe the marriage isn't going very well or whatever. And perhaps we, uh, you know, perhaps we're not sympathetic enough to all of that. Yeah, they're, um, they're humans too, I suppose. I am bellowing, aren't I? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I was going to ask you, because you, you very nearly joined them. Um, uh, after you left university, um, you were offered uh, by the Labour Party the safe seat of Bootle. And if you'd taken that, you'd probably still be an uh, MP that, now. That, that, that story was, uh, was not quite right. I, uh, it wasn't after I'd left university. It was about 10 years after. Oh, it was okay. when I was about 30. And, uh, yeah, I had, I, in those days, I wanted to go into politics. Uh, um, the Labour and uh, I, you know, I, I was rung up and said, "Look, we need a new candidate in Bootle because what had happened is that two MPs for Bootle, amazingly, had died in the in the same calendar year. And the second time round, there was a second by election, and I got rung up by two senior people in the Labour Party up in Liverpool and the Northwest, saying, "Would you be interested in standing?" Because they wanted somebody who was not notably uh, associated with the Trotskyist militant tendency, which I'd written uh, a couple of books about. And I did think about it. And then in the end, I thought, 
do I really want to be, uh, you know, MP for a, a local party where they're all at war with each other? I'm a United, a Manchester United fan. It's going to be, that's not going to go down very well in, in Bootle on Merseyside, is it? <laughs> and I sort of knew it was the turning point in my career. And I, I, I decided not to go for it. It was the safest Labour seat in England at the time. And ever since then, I felt utterly liberated. I have not, I've got no commitment to any political party at all anymore. Um, I think <laughs> they've all got huge faults. And uh, for a long period, when I worked for uh, Newsnight and Channel 4 News, I didn't even vote. Um, so, uh, and I, th- I, think, uh, I, I, I think it's unhealthy, really, that if you've got broadcast political journalists who have got political ambitions like I had, I, d- I think it was wrong, really, that I should have been. I mean, I wasn't covering politics full time in those days. But I think if, you've, if, you're, if you're covering politics for, the, for, for broadcasting and then you've got plans to um, you know, stand for parliament yourself or, or go into work as an advisor, I think you have split loyalties, really. And I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable about people being in that situation, even though I, and especially because I know, I know what it's like. Um, obviously, we've seen a lot of broadcast journalists in the news this week. Kay Burley in her... Um, her her birthday party, uh, supposedly in breach of the coronavirus rules. Do you think that makes it difficult for her to come back on air? I think it does. Yes, at least for a while. Uh, and even um, even when she does come back, it's very very difficult. If you know there are further cases like um, uh, Dominic Cummings or or people who've uh, broken the the COVID rules. Uh, so we have to be, you know, I do think we have to be careful about how we conduct ourselves. Um, and uh, the uh, on the other hand, we are human beings. I mean, you can't say, well, uh, you shouldn't be allowed to be uh, reporting on this issue because it's about education and you've got children at school, you know. So um, but, uh, it, it is a pretty uh, unfortunate incident, that, especially as it, it involves uh, more than one of their staff. Yeah, I think yeah, I think it's a bit, uh, quite the headache over it. Um, uh, Sky News this week. Um, yeah. I, I wanted to um, uh, just finally ask you. You've already written books about Jeffrey Archer, Alex Ferguson, Michael Howard, Michael Heseltine. There's a Nigel Farage one uh, in progress. Is that, that right? It's out next year. Have you found Indeed, out? I'm writing it this morning. Oh, there we are. I've got you... Two and a half thousand words today. Yeah. Well, blimey, blimey, that's that's <laughs> that's productivity. Have you unearthed anything surprising about the man yet? Well, you'll have to wait and see. All oh. I can say is, it is actually all the biographies I've written, I think it's the hardest because there's just so much material around. <laughs> there are no episodes in his life that are boring. Um, you know, everything you look into, there's something, uh, you know, there's something more to add. You know, he's written his own biogra- autobiographies, which, um, you know, to some extent are inadequate. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's a lot more to say. He's still... Um, uh, you know, at it in various ways. Um, and I'm having a huge amount of fun. Um, and, uh, but it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm struggling to get it finished, to be honest, because I keep finding new stuff. And also it's very difficult, different writing the wor- uh, uh, books in the era of the internet where you, you go online and suddenly you find an article you hadn't noticed or an interview you hadn't it's noticed. too much. In the old days, it was always much easier. Has he tried to sort of, you know, offer to take you out for a boozy lunch and, and try and guide you away I, from I, anything? I, I try, when I'm doing biographies of politicians and, uh, and Alex, I always try and keep a certain distance from them. I mean, he knows I'm doing it and I've interviewed him a couple of times for other things. Um, but uh, no, I, I, and I, I you know, he, he uh, but to, be, to his credit, he doesn't appear to have told people not to help me. 
he said it's you know it's, it's up to them which is the sort of ideal relationship yeah. i think a certain di- amount of distance between a biographer and their subject is healthy um and uh it's 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 been okay so far that relationship um uh, I'm, I'm sure there will be things in the book uh, he won't like. In fact, I'd probably be failing if there were <laughs> things in the, the book he didn't like. That's sort of the point of writing it. Well, I hope I hope his reaction is is better than uh, his former UKIP colleague Godfrey Bloom. I think that's still my favourite of your doorsteps when he clobbered you over the head with a with a, a election brochure. I think that's right. It was a, it was the conference brochure, yeah, and uh, uh, it sort of revived my career a bit. That incident. <laughs> And actually, nowadays, Godfrey and I get on rather well. <laughs> well, there we are. There we are. Uh, Michael, I could chat to you for ages, but um, we'll get told off. It's been so lovely to speak to you. Um, and uh, to, as much as anything, just to learn the art of doorstepping, something I've always hated doing, to be honest. I remember having to go and do it once to John Prescott. And uh, he was, yeah, he, I, think, I think he called me a silly boy. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times Radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB Radio, on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box Podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription to get that. Go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.